0: Before we start, God's put it on my heart, I've got to clear up a few things. God wants us to uh, confess our sins and, uh, before we come to Him in prayer. Well, a few weeks ago I was working here doing something, and up on the uh, coat rack there was a pair of jeans and a bag. And I've been known to change clothes here and leave stuff, so I thought, well, they're my jeans. I looked at them, had a hole in a spot where I have a hole. Well, when I got home and tried to put them on, they don't fit. They're way too small, and they had change in the pocket, like 20, 30 cents. So I got the 20, 30 cents in my pocket, and whoever's jeans they are, they're right here. So get that out of the way. The other thing, as I got up this morning and and I read over this sermon one more time, God put something on my heart He wanted me to say. And I I read over the sermon, and there's like five places I could put it in there. I couldn't decide where, so I'm just going to say it before we start. He told me to say that someday there's going to be an accounting for all of us. Just remember that. Someday there's going to be an accounting. So with that, please pray with me and we'll start. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your time to speak. I pray, Lord, that you would give me the words to say. I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd open up hearts and ears to hear. I pray Lord that you're glorified that uh, what these words are sent out to do will will accomplish. Lord, I um, I'm humbled by the opportunity and I know that I'm a sinner, my feet are clay, and I have no right, Lord, but uh, use me today. And if my words aren't right, Lord, uh, I'd ask that you'd strike them from the memory of those that heard them. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I gave um, Tammy the outline last Wednesday, and I've maybe changed a few things. I don't think I'm too far off the outline, but if, if it is, just forgive me. So anyway, money. What's the big deal about money? Money has seldom been talked about here at the DeWitty e. Free Church, in part because it is a contentious, subject and puts the pastor in a position to be misunderstood. How many times have I heard somebody say all the church wants is your money? Some of this name it, claim it, gospel nonsense preached on television hasn't helped. The issue with money is that advice for our love and allegiance which breaks the most important commandment to love God above all else. Jesus said in Matthew 22:36:40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Money, like anything else, when put in place of God, becomes idolatry. As fallen human beings, we are prone to idolatry. The thing that we need to remember is, God created us to worship him and him alone. God wants the number one place in our hearts. If we do not put God on the throne of our hearts, other things take his spot. Money, possessions, power, social media to name a few. Jesus knew this would be a challenge for us. And that is evident in the fact that money was one of his most frequent topics. So much so, I read that Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. 11 of the 39 parables, his parables, are about finances. 2,300 Bible verses are about money with such topics as wealth, possessions, greed, money mindset, contentment, investing, loaning, borrowing, idolatry, and more. Recently, I listened to a sermon on WDLM by Pastor Colin Smith on money. He stated that one of the greatest dangers money possesses is that it wants to be your master. But it's just stated God wants to be our master. Anything else is idolatry. Last week, we sang the song, Jesus, There's No One Like You. In the chorus, we sang, I was going to try to sing it, all I have. I can't. All I have, all we need, all we want is you. Really? The USA has 65% of the world's wealth and only 12% of the world's population. And that has affected the way we think about all we have, all we need, and all we want. When we think that our security is in our paycheck, our bank account, our retirement funds, our trust and our hope is misdirected. Our hope needs to be in the Lord, our true master, and Him alone. If you would humor me for a moment, I'd like to do a DEFC survey to see if money really is that big a deal. I'm going to ask four questions, and if your answer is yes, please raise your hand, and if you would, keep it up until I finish the four questions. Number one, who here has money on them right now? Number two, who here has a credit card? Number three, who here has some sort of debt? Number four, Who has spent money for something in the last two days? Everybody's hand should be up. Don't be lying. As you look around, you can see my point. Money plays a big role in our lives. It's a big deal. God knew it would. That's why in his word, the Bible, he has given us warnings and guidelines for the uses and the handling of it. Money can come in many forms, as we'll see, but for now, suffice it to say, it's an individual's Time, treasure, and talent. And its proper use has to be God first and money second. Having said that, let's look at what money is according to the world and according to the Bible. One of the words used in the Bible for money is mammon. And when I looked it up in my International Dictionary of the Bible, it said mammon is Aramaic for riches. Jesus used it in Luke 16.31, and we just heard it in Matthew 6.24 when he said, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Unquote. Money. Don't miss this point. You can only have one master. Well, I had the dictionary open, I looked up money and its history. Did you know that money in the sense of stamp coin didn't exist in Israel, so far as it's known, until after the exile, about 500 B.C.? Prior to this, exchange of value took place by bartering, the trading of one thing for another without the exchange of money. From this system, they went to a weight system, then minted coins, later paper money, and today we have all sorts of credit systems where you can buy, sell, trade electronically, etc., 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 with the push of a button on your mobile phone without any physical exchange of money. Historians believe that the first or earliest money pieces were struck in about 700 BC, somewhere in Asia Minor. These crude pieces of metal were cut in standard weight and stamped with official marks to guarantee value. My Random House College Dictionary says money is gold, silver, or other metal pieces of convenient form Stamped by government and issued as a medium of exchange and a resource of value. And that paper money is defined as currency in paper form as government or banknotes. At this juncture, since we're at church talking about God first and money second, it's only fitting that I talk about giving to God. I actually didn't have this in my sermon. I read it to my wife, Pat, and she goes, Something's missing here. So I had to go back, and that may not be in your notes. But anyway. So, one of the first instances of giving to God occurs in Genesis 4 2, 5, where Cain and Abel are presenting gifts to God. In this story, God was pleased with Abel's firstborn lamb, but not with Cain's crops. Cain became so incensed that he killed his brother. We are not told why God did not like Cain's gift. But we are told that Cain should have known what was right, and he should have done it. There are different schools of thought on why God rejected Cain's gift. One possibility suggests Proverbs 21:27, quote, The sacrifice of an evil person is detestable, especially when it's offered with wrong motive. Once again, the condition of a person's heart is the heart of the matter. God knows our heart motives and thoughts what he's pleased with is a joyful giver when giving we should be thankful we're able to give after all everything we have belongs to god anyway and if we truly understand that then joy should accompany the giving and sharing of our time treasure and talents i don't know how many testimonies i've heard where a person giving tells about how good it felt to give so much so that they felt they benefited more than the recipient. Surely many of you have heard of a tithe. That's an offering of a tenth. I read where nobody really knows where the practice originated. After Abraham rescued his nephew Lot from the rotting kings, he gave a tithe or a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a priest of God Most High. This was recognized as a holy deed and is spoke of in Hebrews 7.4. Later, the Israelites were directed to give a tithe of their crops and livestock to support the Levites. That's in Leviticus 27.30. And by the time the prophet Malachi, Pastor Casey used to say Malachi, the Italian prophet, comes along, the Israelites' tithing was in a shambles. And God dresses them down in Malachi 3.10. And he challenges them to honor him in this act of obedience to see if he doesn't supply so much return that the storehouses would not be able to hold the abundance. Here is the only time that I know of where God says to the Israelites, test me. So what's my point? How does this pertain to us? Guess what? There's no mention from Jesus in the New Testament about tithing. In Matthew twenty three twenty three, Jesus dresses down the Jewish religious leaders for being meticulously religious in their tithing, but missing the mark when it comes to important aspects of the law like justice, mercy, and faith. So we find ourselves asking. You probably find yourself asking. How much should I be giving to God? That is the $64 question. And here's the answer. Listen up. It's pretty simple. It is a mindset that originates in your heart and is revealed in your hands. Our hearts need to be inclined toward God, acknowledging Him as owner and provider of all we have. The positions of your hands will show the condition of your hearts. If your hands are closed, you are saying, all I have is mine. Well, if your hands are open... You're saying, this is yours, God. Do with it what you will. Hands closed, boo hao for Mandarin Chinese, very bad. Money's the master. Hands open, hung hao, Mandarin Chinese for very good. God's the master. Well, how much should a believer give? Well, that starts with the heart and the hand being right, and then praying, asking the Holy Spirit's guidance. And the results should be accompanied with joy, no matter what the amount of time, treasure, and talent you give. So where do we get our money? As that credit card commercial would say, what's in your wallet? And then I add, and how did it get there? Well, for most people, it requires some sort of work performed in exchange for wages. Work isn't a bad thing. In fact, work is a God-ordained thing. If you look in Genesis 2.15, you'll see where it says, in the beginning when there was just Adam and Eve, that God put them in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. I have a greenhouse on a friend's farm, and I tend and watch over it, and it's work. The thing about work is it involves your time and effort, and that equates to spending of your life. For example... If you work for $20 an hour and go buy something that costs $20, you've spent one hour of your life. If you spend $100, then it takes five hours of your life. The rub is we don't know how many hours of life we've been given. Unfortunately, many, many people work and work and work, making money, using up their life, only to die or become debilitated before they can spend it. Much like the rich man in Luke 12, 16, 21, where he had so much he had to build more barns to hold all his wealth, and then he planned to take it easy. But Luke 12, 20, 21 says, But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you've worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Colossians 3.23 is a great rule of thumb when working. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord. Proverbs has example after example of how hard work and a a right relationship with God as a rule will reap reward. I believe this is God's design for making money. Please note the proper order of things. God first, money second. It should go without saying, but the world doesn't see things God's way. That's not a big revelation for any of you, I bet. (laughs) The gambling industry, for instance, is a plague on our society that makes millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, so much so that our government is now involved. The problem with gambling is as a industry is that there's a winner and a loser. Unfortunately, there's a lot more losers than winners when you gamble. In in a business class at the University of Iowa, one of my professors once asked this test question. What is a good business deal? The answer, according to him, was a good deal is when both buyer and seller are happy. He contended that it wasn't a matter of cost or expense, rather that both parties were satisfied with the deal. As he put it, it was a win-win situation, both parties gain. Not so in gambling. And it's not so in quick get rich quick endeavors either. And that's what gambling really is. Proverbs 28:22 says, Quote, greedy people try to get rich quick but don't realize they're headed for poverty, Unquote. God says money is to be made a little at a time. So you ask, and thanks for asking, how much time and effort should we spend acquiring money? I wish I could tell you for certain or give you a formula to work out, but I can't. What I can tell you for certain is that God not only ordained us to work, He also ordained us to rest. This is spelled out in the giving of the law to Moses. You shall work six days and rest the seventh. The seventh day was the Lord's day, and for his praise and glory, and for one's rest. What I'm about to say is my own take on what I've experienced and learned regarding taking time from work to rest. Resting helps a person to be renewed in physical body as well as mind like a sabbatical. With rest, a person as a rule becomes more productive because they can think clearer, thus become more efficient and make less mistakes. I don't know if any of you remember we just had this small group study where they, had a, they mentioned a Kansas wheat farmer who didn't work Sundays because he believed God. And it stated that over time he prospered more than his neighbors who worked seven days a week through the wheat harvest. When I grew up in the 60s and early 70s, there weren't any stores open on Sunday in Davenport. In Iowa, I don't think. It was sweet. People went to church, and then it was a quiet day thereafter. Fast forward 2021. Oh, my gosh. How many people miss church because of kids' sporting events? Weekend getaways, work, shopping, Etc., 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 and so much so this time of year as we approach Christmas, I think that Sonny's probably more busy than the other six. Ask yourself, who's the master then? Don't be driven. I once was, I was proud of a 50 60 hour work week, sometimes more. The result was devastating to my family. And it was only by the grace of God that my marriage and children survived. My worry was that I needed to be financially stable. And with that, I'd be successful and secure. Matthew 6, 25 through 30 talks of worrying about what we need and says the lilies of the field don't work, yet they have been taken care of by God. And then he cares so much more for us that surely he can and will meet our needs as well. Matthew six thirty one thirty three 33, quote, So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and then he will give you everything you need, unquote. We need to be mindful of this truth as we spend our lives pursuing money. God knows our needs and will supply them. Again you ask, and thanks for asking. Craig, what are our real needs? I missed my high school graduation to go to Mexico with a man named Coy Curtis, his son Coy, my little brother Coy, there's a lot of Coys, and 17 other young men. The purpose was to show us what a third-world country was like and build an appreciation for what we have here in the United States of America. Coy Curtis was a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army, a decorated World War II artillery field commander, a West Point graduate, born in Arizona before it was a state. My dad worshipped this man. He was my dad's commander. In short order, I learned when Coy spoke, you shut up and listened. During our two day trip down on the train, Coy asked me what my priorities in life were. What I came to realize later was that he was asking me what I thought my needs in life were. I fumbled and bumbled around job, car, girlfriend. No, no, no. Car, job, girlfriend. No, no, no. girlfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend. I'll never forget what he said, air, six minutes, water, two days, food, two weeks, everything else comes after that, Craig. As I've aged, I've come to realize that what he shared with me were basic needs essential for human existence, and what I shared with him were wants. Discerning the difference between a need and a want is one of the greatest money management issues facing Americans. And it needs to be addressed early and often in your life. Followers of Jesus in their want and need decisions should look and act different from the rest of this world. If, we're truly, if we truly believe that God provides what we need. In this day and age of ubiquitous electronic devices, everybody is bombarded by advertising almost everywhere, every hour, every day. You can't hardly go out to eat without a TV in the restaurant. Go down to the BP station south of town and they got a TV monitor on the gas pump. And you know what it's doing? Advertising. Advertising. Trying to sell you something. One of the basic premises of salesmanship is persuading a person they are in need, lacking something that's essential. What is happening is that after you've been bombarded enough, you start to believe that a want is a need. Think about this. I recently heard a sermon where the preacher said, most of the things people buy today didn't exist a hundred years ago. Most of the things people buy today didn't exist a hundred years ago. I got thinking about it. Let's count the ways. Electronics. Telecommunications. Air travel. Paid TV. Movies. Eating out, credit cards, credit card debt, and the list goes on. You'd be hard-pressed to say that these are essential needs. Coupled with this spending on non-essentials has come a spiritual shift where a lot of people are turning their backs on God, even denying his existence. Along with this, there's this false sense of Self-sufficiency. The outcome is people save less, extravagant government spending, sky-high personal debt as well as national debt, less giving to churches and ministry, less investment to name a few. Our society and culture has become existentialistic. That's a big word. Live for today and the heck with tomorrow. I once knew a fellow that was on the board of directors for General Motors when they were the largest corporation in the world. At one time, he was on their fi- head of their finance division, head of their overseas division, and on their board of directors, very sharp financially. He once told me that his generation was raping my generation financially, in that they had lived through the best economic times known to mankind with the least taxes, the least government intervention, all the while spending every bit of it, with many reaching retirement age having no net worth. And what they were, and that they were also constantly lobbying for more government handouts and support. When he told me this, I was shocked. I never heard anybody say anything like that before. The more I thought about, the more I realized there's a lot of truth in what he said. Furthermore, that that type of worldview has helped create an existential mindset that leads people away from God and towards disaster. 1 John 3, 17, 18 reads, quote, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? I say, how can an individual have money or be in a position to help others when there's so much debt? makes me think of the statement I heard. It goes like this. Many people are spending money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. (laughs) That's no good. Have any of you ever read George Washington's Farewell Address? You should read it. It's probably not taught in schools anymore because it talks a lot about God and God's precepts. Worth noting, he said that no future generation should pass on debt to the next generation and that this government should never borrow from other countries. Oops, too late. (laughs) If you ever read this address and share it with somebody and they contend that it's been editorialized, which has been done with history lately, everybody's like, you can't say that, that's not history. Share with them that George Washington, along with James Madison, wrote this address, and George Washington never spoke it. Rather, it was published and circulated in some of the leading newspapers of the day. Proverbs says, the borrower is a slave to the lender. Psalms 109.11 says, that a creditor seizes all. Romans 13.8 says, Oh nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. Please hear me. Debt makes money your master. And and when money is your master, God is not. And good will not follow. In the book, How to Manage Your Money by Larry Burkett, Larry's gone to be with the Lord. He was a Christian financial uh, counselor. He stated that 75% of the divorces in couples under the age of 30 was caused by financial problems. That 65% of the men over 65 years old in the USA have no net worth. Also, that money problems aren't about not having enough money, but about spending more than you have. A friend of mine used to say, his grandpa would say, you'll never go broke if you don't spend more than you have. That's pretty simple. Looking back at the Bible, First Timothy 6.10 is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It reads, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Note what it says. The love of money. What you often hear is money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in and of itself isn't the root of the problem. It's a medium of exchange. The problem is when somebody starts to love money. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts 5, 1 through 11, as I read. But there was a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, sold some property, He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was for the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God." As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young man got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out to be buried. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, this was the price. And Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young man who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Obviously, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have a proper understanding of who God is nor the consequences of loving money. Also, please note the object lesson that wasn't missed by those who saw what happened. Great fear gripped them in anybody else who heard. Jesus said it. You can't serve two masters. Scott Kaczynski, when he preached, talked to us about the two gates, the wide and the narrow. Two gates and two gates only. And when Jason Crosby preached last week, he talked about two destinations when we die, only two, God or no God. That's what it amounts to. If God, then good. If no God, then bad. The reason so many are choosing no God is that it comes in so many appealing forms and is sugar-coated. But it always, always leads away from God and to eventual destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. If you turn to that, I'd like to read that. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. It reads, Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote godly life, Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over meanings of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. They have turned their backs on truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation, are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. It appears somebody in this passage is preaching for financial gain and not God's glory and honor. This is not to say that a preacher shouldn't be paid. Just a few verses earlier, in 1 Timothy 5:17, it says, "Elders, not myself, it's referring to pastors, who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching." Unquote. What this verse in chapter 6 is alluding to is a hard issue of loving money, not God. Look at the character traits when money is the master. Arrogant. Ignorant. Argumentative. Jealousy. Slander. Evil suspicions. And Paul didn't stop here. He went on to say that money lovers cause trouble, that their minds are corrupt, they reject truth. And all of this ungodly show- And blow preaching is for money. Anybody here wanting to be labeled with those characteristic traits? I don't think so. They lead a person away from God and good. When God is the master, the character traits should be something like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Can I get an amen? Anybody out there? (laughs) In verse 6, Paul says, quote, true godliness with contentment is great wealth. When I last preached, I mentioned God is, is concerned with our character and not our comfort. But note that if you possess and pursue godly character, one of the effects will be contentment. And that's comforting to know. There's a book called Can Money Buy Happiness? where the authors did a study. And they concluded happiness remains the same once a household income exceeds $75,000. Contrary to what many people think, i.e., if I only had a little more money, I'd be happier and more content. Contentment in all circumstances can only be found when God is the master of your heart. It can't be bought. It's acquired by faith. And trust. As we head for home, I'd like to share a couple stories about money. Proverbs 23:5 quote In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings, fly away like an eagle. unquote October 19th, 1987, the U.S. stock market crashed. Losing 20%, 22% of its value in a single day. Remember me earlier talking about Coy Curtis? Well, he'd been very successful in real estate in Arizona. And he put a lot of his money in the stock market. And what he put in there, he bought on margin. And when you buy on margin and it goes up, you're okay. When it goes down, you're not okay. You have to come up with a difference. Well, a few days after the crash, Coy called me. And he told me he'd been planning on liquidating all his stocks and moving to West Virginia and retiring. Only that on the 17th, he lost $1 million in a single day. That he tried to call and sell, but he couldn't because of the market chaos. He went from a millionaire to broke in one day. I could feel the pain over the phone as he spoke. It wasn't long after that, Coy found out he had cancer. And I believe it was about a year later he called me again. And he said that he'd sold the house that day, and with that, he paid off all his debt. And what a good feeling it was. Not long after that, he died. in the blink of an eye. The last story I'm going to share with you is my own. I grew up in the church. I thought I was a real believer in spite of the fact that I didn't own a Bible, let alone read it. Although I did take a biblical and classical literature class in college, but only because it was a core course for literature and all the others are full when I registered. (laughs) My goal in life after college was to become a millionaire. You see, that's what I thought success was. Pat and I married in 1977, graduated from college, and moved back to Davenport. Within a year, I started my own carpentry business, bought a house on credit, and started a family. I was working 50, 60 hours a week. And proud of it, coaching baseball, on the volunteer fire department, on the city council in Eldridge at the age of 25. And in my mind, I was doing it. Guess who was my master? Money ruled and God and godliness didn't. But the hound of heaven pursued me and broke me in a big way. Being strong-willed, it took a couple major train wrecks, but God stuck with it. The first was an IRS audit that was, in every sense of the word, ugly and consumed three years of my life, our lives, ending with about $10,000 in expenses through professional fees, additional taxes, fines, and interest. All this during the height of the recession in the 80s. Think I'd learn? Read the writing on the wall? Nope. I doubled down, went right back at it, only to hit the wall again in the 90s. This time is when my oldest daughter rebelled. Being a strong-willed like her father, she rebelled in capital letters. In her defense, part of the problem was her daddy wasn't loving her as he should. Rather, he was loving his money master. The long and short of it was that within a year's time everything I worked for was on the rocks. My business was faltering, my marriage was a shambles, my other two children were suffering as well. We were spending money like water on programs that didn't work. During this year of hell, do you know what my most constant complaint was? how much money it was costing me. How much money it was costing me. But God, but God. Somewhere along the line, I attended a men's gathering where I heard the gospel and received an invitation to a Bible study. When I showed up to the Bible study, the fellow running, it looked surprised. And years later, he told me he thought I'd be the last person to attend. With that, I started to read the Bible. Couldn't put it down. But I still had my money master. Then one day when I was driving to work, complaining to God about how much money my daughter was costing me, he responded that he was going to take her home to be with him if I wasn't going to love her and take care of her. Suddenly, suddenly, I saw myself for what I was my ugly, sinful, self centered, money loving self, and how I was putting money ahead of my hurting, confused daughter. I started crying so much I couldn't see. I pulled over, I begged God not to do such a thing, and I mean I broke and begged. (laughs) I told him whatever I had, whatever I could earn, whatever I could borrow was his that I learned my lesson, but please, please, don't take her to teach me this. I've learned my lesson. He didn't take her. He didn't take her. We got her into a Christian program in Florida where she met Jesus, where I met Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We traveled to Florida 10 times that year for an average of four-day stays. And you know what? When I did my taxes at the end of the year, it was the best year I ever had. to this day, I kid you not, to this day, I do not know how that could possibly be. So in conclusion, we can only have one master. We have to choose. God, we have to choose. The narrow or the wide, the good or the bad love one hate the other this is as clear as i can say it choose god he is the master of infinite value both now and in eternity consider the condition of your hands and your hearts and incline them towards god and him alone pray and ask for the holy spirit's guiding in the spending of your life your mammon your time Your treasure, your talent. And thank you for spending your time with me this morning. I pray God has been glorified. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are the the good choice and that you are the choice and that you've made yourself known through your word, through your son. I pray, Lord, that um, everyone here that's listened to this today would choose you, that you would be the master. Help us also, Lord, as you spoke to me this morning, to remember there will be in the county. I just thank you now and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.